This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not I have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, 
Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Sam Dillon. Now, Sam is a Marine, a Purple Heart recipient, a firefighter, and the president of Boston Firefighters Union. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into the military, his combat wound story, his journey into the fire service, mental health, cancer, the vaccine mandates that are still threatening jobs in his city, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 700 episodes now. And all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Sam Dillon. Enjoy. Well, Sam, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So where on planet Earth are we finding you this fine afternoon? I'm in my office at uh, Local 718 headquarters, uh, Union Hall in Boston. As if you actually doesn't give it away. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) All right. Well, I would love to start at the very, very beginning. I've heard you on a couple of podcasts and I really was able to to get some some elements of your life, but I didn't really hear a lot of the kind of early life journey into the fire service elements so much. So tell me where you were born and tell me Mm -hmm. a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Uh, So I was born in Boston. Um, I grew up uh, primarily single, single family household. It was um, my mother and myself. Um, my mother worked, uh, did a couple of different jobs. Uh, primarily, she worked at various law firms as a legal secretary. Um, we spent a lot of time with my grandparents, um, who my grandfather, uh, incredibly hard worker, worked, um, worked for the town, worked for the town of Brookline, DPW, he managed uh, the Parks and Recreations Athletics. So he's actually responsible for um, founding and building uh, Little League Baseball, Pop Warner Football, and uh, youth hockey in his hometown. Uh, so definitely just come from a you know, middle and working class, blue collar family that um, has always just been committed to serving, uh, serving the community and giving back. Now, was your granddad an athlete himself as he progressed into his later years? He he absolutely was. So uh, my grandfather on my mother's side um, was actually uh, an incredible hockey player. He played for Team USA, the uh, national team. And um, his brother, my great uncle, was actually the captain of the Olympic hockey team that won a gold medal, uh, first ever gold medal in ice hockey for Team USA in 1960 when they defeated the Soviet Union. It's kind of a famous story. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's probably not the one you're thinking of. That was, uh, you're probably thinking of the miracle game in 1980. 
they uh, they actually Team USA beat the Russians uh, 20 years prior in 1960 under some similar circumstances. Okay, no, I, you're absolutely right. Um, all right, well then, with that lens for a second. I had a, a gentleman on the show, Doug Orchard, who made an amazing film called The Motivation Factor. And it was mm-hmm. focused on PE in a certain California area. Um, they had a, an amazing PE program that was churning out just phenomenally healthy athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, what in discussions, if you were able to have them with your granddad, was his perception of some of the, the kind of health challenges that we have with him coming from an athletic background that was trying to bring athletics and sports to his community so he's uh you know he's, he's definitely an old, old school kind of guy um and his mentality uh about fitness and diet uh it it all centered around how he approached his life which was just hard work you know you can overcome um almost any obstacle deficiency health concern um by dedicating yourself to just working hard identifying where you want to be identifying your goals and committing yourself to achieving them. You know, he came up in a time, you know, I, I compare uh, stories he's told me about training regimens and diet. Um, they were eating T-bone steaks, mashed potatoes, whole milk. And um, then they were going out and winning gold medals. They uh, even, I remember when I was younger, he, he was always physically active, but he never, you know, he was never living in the gym. He was never, um, very strict diet wise. He was just always such a strict and dedicated hard worker. Um, he would throw a, a lead, a lead vest on and run three miles around the reservoir near his house. Um, he never stretched. He never ate, you know, a calculated diet. Um, and he was still able to achieve a great deal. Um, so it's funny, like we know so much more about human performance. We know so much more about diet and exercise and stretching and rest time and how important that is. Um, I don't I never saw the man take a day off in his life. I never saw him rest. So it does it does go to show it. It instilled in me uh, times change, science changes, approaches change. But it, when you have a foundation of mental resilience and you have a foundation of hard work, that that is what is ultimately going to be responsible for U.S. success. Yeah, well, I think that's the problem with the conversation. I think sometimes there's too much science and they've overcomplicated mm-hmm. things. You know, you shouldn't have to analyze every ounce of your food, I don't think. But when you could trust that your steak came from a local farmer that just fed his cows grass and the mashed potatoes were grown without chemicals thrown all over them, then that made that meal very, very different than you know something that you pull out of a freezer and stick in a microwave. Oh, completely. And it's funny to see as, as successful as he was and as overall healthy as he was, I can only imagine what levels him and his peers could have achieved if they had had the knowledge that we have now. But I, I, I agree with you. I think sometimes we overcomplicate the situation and sometimes in the moment, um, there's nothing wrong with just rolling up your sleeves and getting to work. And if you have that foundation of hard work and committed work ethic, um, it's going to take you places. Absolutely. Well, with that kind of multi-generational element, were you exposed to sport at a young age and what were you playing? Absolutely. Um, I was exposed to sports from a very, very early age, uh, primarily a hockey player. Um, I played hockey year round, uh, my entire childhood, my entire adult life. Uh, that was the number one sport in our family. Um, 
I, I played baseball as a kid, lacrosse in high school, played some football, but um, hockey has always and will always be my number one. When I talk to people that have ended up becoming physical high performers, um, mm -hmm. one of the sports that seems to really develop grit is wrestling when they were younger, but it seems like hockey is another sport. When, Without kind of diving all the way into your, your other careers as you grew up, when you look back, was were there elements of your hockey training that factored into the military and ultimately the fire service as well? Oh, 100%. Um, and it, it demonstrates to me just the importance of getting involved in sports and getting involved in teams at a young age, you know, very, very few people are ever going to make it to play college sports, let alone professional. But so the, the, the objective is not to play division one college hockey. The, the objective is not to be a pro hockey player. The, the mission, the objective is to learn how to be a part of a team, learn how to be a part of a structure, learn to identify your role within the team not everybody can be on the starting five. Not everybody can be a goal scorer, but you need that team. You need every component. And it tied directly into the Marine Corps and it ties directly into the fire service. Those are two team-based entities. And that's, that's the approach I've taken to trying to lead this union is we're a team, we're a family. Everybody has their role to play. If you're unsure of your role, come down and we'll find one for you. Everybody has to contribute and every, there's a way for everybody to contribute. And you look at, you know, guys, men and women in the fire department, in the police department, in the military, um, you can definitely tell who has been a part of a team dynamic in the past. And it shows, and it, it, it definitely helps. Uh, it aids, it certainly aids in their success. So being an Englishman coming to America, and I've talked about this many times on, on the podcast, but I think it's an important point to make, especially when your whole discussion is on mental and physical wellness and, and peak performance mm -hmm. in the fire service. We have an element that forges excellence in our children in sports to the point where more often than not, they're burnt out and wanting to, to be active anymore. And a lot of them accumulate some pretty horrific injuries along the way. So by the time they graduate, whether it's school or high um, or college, you know, you've kind of broken these young men and women. That being said, as rough as hockey is, it seems like that's one of the sports that you see people play after those ages that, that continue to play. What do you think is about that sport that separates, for example, football and baseball and some of these, these kind of, and I, and I use this term a lot, you know, the, the Uncle Rico mentality. Well, I, I used to, where it mm -hmm. seems like hockey people still play. So I would say, I mean, up, up here, obviously in Boston, hockey is a culture that you come from hockey families, hockey neighborhoods. It's we're a hockey town. We're a hockey city. Um, so it's definitely just ever present in, um, in everyday life. Um, I think there's some other dynamics to that too. Like, you know, you just look at the nature of the sport. Like you're not really going to, you're going to play men's league flag football, but you can't go out in full pads and really organize uh, a recreational football league for adults. Um, hockey, on the other hand, um, you can, you can grade that off a little bit. I know I, like when I play rec league or senior league hockey, um, you can kind of go out there and take it for sport. You can kind of take it for competition. You can you can really grade it to the appropriate level. Um, and I think everybody has a passion uh, for what they've given their hearts to. But it's a regional thing here. But hockey is just such a lifeblood 
and just such a, a steady undercurrent in the people in this city and from this city. Uh, we're gonna find we're gonna find a way to get on the ice. We're, we're never gonna truly let that get away from us. Beautiful. Yeah, I think that's a very important conversation because because sports and games playing, not trying to, as you said, win the NFL or you know whatever organization you're in. Um, is the, the 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 bulk of of the the benefit that you can pull from sport and it's a shame that when there's that elite mentality that you break people to the point where they don't want to move anymore they can't move anymore um so whether it's football soccer um or hockey or some of these other sports it's a really important conversation to have like okay this we we found a way of transitioning from high level college to you know, a bunch of accountants and firefighters that meet on a Saturday and still play. And I think that's a really, really important kind of well, philosophy. Don't, don't get me wrong. It's it's recreationally, but you put put a bunch of firefighters out on the ice together. Uh, there's there's a there's going to be competition and you, you're there to have fun. You're there to see your friends, but it, you're there to win. You know, you, you are you are out on the ice to win. Yeah. And I think that's the fine line you touched on. Younger kids you getting burned out with youth sports. It's a, it's a fine line that coaches and parents and as society, we have to walk because they're there to learn, especially at a younger age. They're there to learn how to be a part of that team. But you're also there to learn how to compete. And you are there to learn how to win. And we've associated the, the W word with such a negative connotation that I think you can get burned out in the other direction, which is apathy. And we need to instill at every level that winning is important and there's nothing wrong with wanting to be a winner because there's nothing wrong with wanting to be successful. You know, there's different ways to achieve success. Some of them are moral. Some of them aren't. That's what you have to teach, but you can't vilify people who want to be successful and you can't burn out young kids by driving them too hard, but you also can't create an atmosphere in a society where it's just apathy because when you when you demonize winning, when you demonize people who want to maintain a success first mindset, it's a detriment to them. It's a detriment to all of us. Life is a competition and there's healthy competition and there's unhealthy competition. But wanting to be successful personally, professionally, mentally, that's a positive mindset to have. You should want to be successful. Yeah, no, I agree completely. But that that um, participation trophy conversation I've seen has swung so far the other way that you've got obese men eating Cheetos, sitting in Lazy Boy, talking about you know kids today. Mm-hmm. When you do have you know the, the focus is so on just winning for that school or that college that you're missing the fact that that young man or my, or woman might want to become a firefighter and now you just blew out their knees. You know what I mean? So there's, to me, as you said, there's there's a balance and winning is absolutely part of it, but winning is not all of it. No, no. It's especially again with, with younger, um, you should be able to identify the teams that you're on to focus strictly on winning and the teams and programs that you're on to kind of foster uh, an educational experience, learn how to participate in sport, to keep yourself healthy, to be a part of a team, um, but where ultimate victory is not the ultimate objective. You're not going to sacrifice these kids' health. You're not going to sacrifice their mentality. There's, uh, there's different programs. There's different teams for different objectives. Absolutely. Well, just before we kind of progress forward into your career journey, one of the least spoken elements of mental health in our profession is ch- the, the element of childhood trauma. And that obviously is relative. You know, I've had people on here that I talk about this a lot that were, you know, one was a child soldier in Sierra Leone. 
I mean, it's hard for any of us to stack up against what he saw and what he was forced to do. And then you have all the way to the people that were adopted, fostered, you know, single parent family dwelling, but they all ultimately have elements of trauma and if left unaddressed can be detrimental as we progress into our career when you look back now with this lens that you have as a as a older you know veteran firefighter and now someone who's holding the torch on mental health are there elements of your upbringing that you would think contributed to that um i think everybody everybody has their own history everybody has their own story um there's aspects of my personal life and my childhood that i think i know had a detrimental impact on me then that I still carry with me today. Um, that doesn't make me unique. I think that makes me very common. I think everybody, no matter how outwardly put together or successful or self-confident they may appear to be, everybody has their own struggle. Everybody has their own story. Everybody's life has their own dynamic. Um, you know, and like you touched on, I, I am making my mental health and wellness, a priority of my time as union president. Um, because I think as we educate ourselves more on this, you look at the, the professions and fields that seem to be so seem to be more impacted by mental health. And it's one of those, it almost touches on the nature versus nurture argument where, you know, I, if I, Firefighting is a very dangerous profession. It's, it's mentally taxing. It's physically taxing. So it shouldn't be a surprise that we have more cases of mental health and physical injury than other professions. But then you also need to take a look at the nature of the job. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a joke, but um, a truly, completely, I don't want to use the word insane, but running into a burning building is not a baseline human reaction. It, it actually is counter to self-preservation. So I think sometimes you, you, you may see people who um, have a diff we, we have a different mindset than the majority of the population because we've chosen this profession. So I think you always have to keep that in mind that, you know, I, I say this often to our membership and I say this um, when we liaise with various support agencies, what makes us great at our job, what makes us what makes Boston firefighters so good at what they do is a mentality that unfortunately more often than not makes us very, it makes us not quite as good at taking care of ourselves. When you've dedicated your life to putting your life and your mental health and your physical health on the line for others, you've all, you're demonstrating through your actions that you, you're not afraid to risk yourself for other people. And that's very noble. What, one of my objectives is is to try to assist and guide our membership and where to draw where to draw the line. What makes you great at a fire doesn't make you very good at taking care of yourself. And we have to get to a place where we do both. We're not going to sacrifice our job performance because we don't sacrifice what we do because other people rely on us to save them and protect them. When the fire is out, when you're on your day off, now it's time to focus on you and your family. It's okay to rest. It's okay to ask for help. It's essential that you avail yourselves of professionals because it's only going to make you better. It makes you a better person, makes you a better father, makes you a better mother, and it's going to make you a better firefighter. I had a guest on the show probably about two weeks ago that said something that really resonated with me. Um, for a long time now, you know, 
10 plus years ago, I probably subscribed to the same thing that most people do. You hear about a suicide and you're like, oh my God, how could they do that? You know, there's obviously the, the, the cowardice element that people talk about, but also how could you be so selfish? Six years into hearing some incredibly powerful stories of people that have been close to, people that were stopped right before, and people that even pulled the trigger or jumped off the bridge, they just survived. You realize that a common denominator, obviously one is suffering, wanting wanting to suffer, suffering to end, but the other one is the feeling of being a burden. The brain is so miswired by that point that it's not a selfish act, it's a selfless act. This person then commented, well, you're in a profession where you don't value your life the same way that the average person does, that you will go into that burning building. You'll you'll hang off the side of that building on a rope, you know, whatever it is. So then you add that into that mental health equation where you feel like you would be doing the world a, fam- a favor, your family a favor. There's a little less resistance to that when you're in a selfless profession already. So then you have that already perfect storm and then you add that element of selflessness that we already have in our profession, I think that adds yet another layer to some of our men and women actually completing suicide. I would agree. And I think that, um, and not, not, not to sound harsh or cold, but um, having the ability, and I would even maybe even the luxury, ha- having the ability to assess and even judge something as, as catastrophic as suicide, as selfish, um, I think that's a luxury of those who have never been confronted with it personally. Um, you know, coming from a military background, I lost track of how many Marines and sailors I directly served with who ended up taking their own lives. Um, I've never viewed any of them as selfish. I've had moments where I, I, I w- I've been mad at them. I've been enraged with them for taking their own life. And Maybe some of that was selfish on my part because I was I was mad at them that they were gone and I was mad at them because now I have to go on without them. And I I blame myself for not being there. I blame others for not being there. Um, but at the end of the day, I don't view any of them as selfless, excuse me, as selfish. I think in their minds, to your point, I think they probably viewed it as a very selfless act and they wanted their pain to stop, but they also wanted the the burden that they felt that they were bringing on others around them that they cared about to stop. And this is something where we, we need to have these open conversations and we need to really sit down and take this issue head on because whether it's selfish, whether it's selfless, whether it's a fight, it's, we just have to take it on and we have to address it and we have to do whatever it takes to get it to stop because it's a plague for active duty military it's a plague for veterans, and it's in, it's so destructive to the first responder and firefighter community. Our lives are dangerous enough. Our profession is dangerous enough to lose people to their own hand, by their own hand, off the clock is completely unacceptable. And it's something we all need to rise to the occasion and say, it is incumbent on us to prevent it because someone who's in the throes of such a terrible mental health episode that they're even considering taking their own life. They are not in a position where they can think clearly. They're not clearly not acting in their own best interest. They're in a moment of crisis and our profession firefighting is defined by showing up in a moment of crisis and addressing the crisis and walking it back. We do that when a house is on fire. We have to do that when our, our, our brothers and sisters lives are on fire. 
well, what I've kind of learned again from this journey that, that I found myself on is we're also kind of looking at one singular thing. So perfect example, take the, the cancer, which is also another epidemic in our profession. It's, it's the, it's the carcinogens in the fire. If we just clean our gear, then we'll be good. Now, is that a part of it? Absolutely. Do you want to be sitting on your off gassing gear now that we know what we know? Absolutely not. That makes no sense. But, you know, there's, there's an element of you're not going to, the, the engine's not going to be a sterile laboratory either. There's, there's a, there's a happy medium there. But if you look at the cancer epidemic in the fire service, my last place protected Disney World, the place I finished my career at, who ran next to no fire, just all EMS. And yet they had a rampant cancer epidemic there. But they were up all night and they were working, you know, 48, 56 hour plus you know, work weeks. So again, with cancer, if you're not discussing sleep deprivation, carcinogens, and obviously your own physical fitness and nutrition and the environmental um, pollutants, you're missing a big part of that, that whole pie. And with the mental health element, I feel like it's just, oh, it's what you saw. Well, you were on that call on that street. So that's probably why you've got PTSD instead of, well, what happened before you ever put the uniform on? Okay, and how is your marriage at home? And of course, you know, we saw all these things and what shifts are you on? And are you sleeping? And is there organizational stress? Have you got a good leader or a toxic leader? Um, and so when you combine all of those, now you're having the complete conversation. But if we just focus on, oh, it's, you know, firefighters see horrible stuff. I feel like that's where so many people are slipping through the gaps because we're not having that complete conversation and especially sleep deprivation. And we'll get into that in a bit. But I think you guys work a 42-hour work week. Is that right? That's correct. We work, we work 24-hour shifts. Yeah. So, so most of the rest of the country is on 56-plus-hour work week at a minimum without the mandatories that we all get hit with, which makes it more like an 80-hour work week. So if we're not having that conversation, we're missing a part of the obesity, the cancer, the autoimmune disease, the mental health, the addiction, all of those conversations because without sleep, your body breaks down in a thousand different ways. So you hit the nail on the head with the total conversation, and it is the total package. And if we're really going to finally get serious about attacking occupational cancer in the fire service, if, 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 if we're going to be about something, let's be about it. And Local 718 is all about this, and we're not afraid to take it head on, and we're not afraid to have the conversations that the industry might not want us to have and that certain other groups might not want us to have. It's not just burning buildings that are giving us cancer. Are they a contributing factor? Fast moving fires, smoke over flame, new building materials? Yes, they are. They are known carcinogens. They are known to be negatively impacting cancer rates. So we address that. But now you look at the bunker gear that we wear. They have known carcinogens. They are known to negatively impact cancer rates, but we won't talk about that. It, it's so much harder to get that conversation off the ground. Sleep deprivation, physical exercise, physical well-being, diet, all of these things, they're all contributing factors. And to say that we're going to be serious about taking on occupational cancer and then not having the fortitude to address any one of the contributing factors, that's weak. And we're not going to get this done by taking a weak approach. Building materials, absolutely, they contribute to cancer. But so does bunker gear. So does sleep deprivation. So does um, uh, not exercising, not eating right. They're all contributing factors. And 
if we're not willing to take on all contributing factors, then we shouldn't have this fight in the first place because we're already, we're basically thrown in the towel before we even start. Yeah, absolutely. I saw a big kind of push towards the PFAS conversation in the gear and I had um, Rob Bellot on the show who was the man who, who was the real lawyer in Dark Waters, the movie, so they exposed um, DuPont poisoning the local town. Amazing, fascinating conversation. But I saw a lot of the fire service go, ah, this is it. This is what's given us cancer. Well, it's easy as for a department to point at a gear manufacturer and say, that's it, without them looking at themselves, as you said, and go, well, we also need to stop working our firefighters to death you know so as as you said these are all little islands we need to pull them all together and have that complete conversation absolutely and we'll you know and i'm very serious about this we'll take on the internal fight if we need to have some difficult conversations with each other about our physical fitness and about our personal habits we will because we have to um i'm a firm believer in you know associates tell each other what they want to hear friends and family tell each other what they need to hear. And we are a family and I take that very seriously. So we aren't going to be afraid to have the necessary difficult conversations with each other. I would rather one of my brother or sister firefighters be upset with me because I told them what they needed to hear than than to go to their funeral in five years because I didn't have the fortitude that it took to, to tell them what they needed to hear. We're going to address, and we are addressing the internal struggle. We're putting a lot, we're putting a lot of attention, a lot of focus, a lot of money into safety, health, and wellness. Encouraging firefighters to exercise, encouraging firefighters to eat right, setting up diet plans, liaising with dietitians and physical therapists and trainers. We're taking that on, and we're going to continue to take it on. But we're also going to have the external fights as well, the construction material industry. They need to stop putting carcinogens in building materials. The bunker gear industry, we know PFASs are bad. We know that our bunker gear has carcinogens in them. And we're handling the internal fight, and we're also going to take on the external fight. Brilliant. Well, I want to walk you through your career journey before we pick apart all these areas, because I want to definitely dive into yeah. O2X and, and some of the progressive things that you're doing in your department that I think should be mirrored in, in the rest of the country. But tell me what your career aspirations were when you were young and then how that ultimately switched and you ended up in the military. Uh, so there wasn't actually much of a switch coming out of the military because all that I ever wanted to be was a Boston firefighter. Um, I was that kid in class. Um, Mrs. Vita's first grade class, draw a picture. You can be a doctor. You can be a lawyer. You can be an astronaut. Nope. I'm, I'm going to be a Boston firefighter. And that's all that I ever wanted to do. That's all I've ever wanted to do. Um, so I'm, I'm very fortunate. I'm, I'm living my dream. I am, I am living the dream that I have had my entire life. And I'm incredibly blessed, privileged, and encouraged to be doing that. Um, it was just all I ever wanted to do. I, I have relatives who are firefighters. Um, I was exposed to the job at a very young age. And the importance of this profession was impressed upon me. And it, apparently it stuck. Um, you know, as I got older, graduated from high school, I mean, uh, the terrorist attacks of September 11th were a defining moment for this country. And they were a defining moment in my life. Um, I had always wanted to serve in the military at some level. And the day of 9-11, I then decided that not only was I going to serve in the military, I was going to serve in the Marine Corps 
and I wanted to be infantry. Um, I was in active duty Marine Corps for six years, um, but I never lost sight of where I wanted to end up. And uh, my time in the Marine Corps came to an end. I was able to come home to Boston and then it was right back on track to become a Boston firefighter. With the switch, that's what I was kind of getting to was you had this burning desire to become a firefighter, but when 9-11 happened, you switched off that burning desire to serve overseas. So firstly, a question that I always ask people, um, when you were deployed, and the reason the kind of backstory behind this, when we're in America and you have the kind of mainstream media that we have, if you are a non-military you know, citizen, you get a very polarized view of war. You either get this kill them all, let God sort them out mentality, or you get the, they're all baby killers. And, and very, very, very rarely do we get the voices of the men and women who are actually out there risking their lives. So two-part question. The first part, when you, is there a moment when you first deployed into a combat zone where you realize, regardless of the politics that sent you to that particular place, that there were some horrific people that needed to be taken care of. 100%. And, um, you know, the United, the military is the, the tip of the spear. It, it starts, it starts with a politician's pen and it ends with an M16 in the hands of a 19 year old. Um, and we can spend the rest of our lives debating and discussing and attacking and supporting that process. Um, when you're in combat, when you're in a combat zone, when you're in a firefight, you're not thinking really about what led you to be there. You're thinking about what you have to do to be led out of there or to lead others out of there. There's no politics in a gunfight. There's winning. There's surviving. Um, and there are. There are bad people in this world. And there are, unfortunately, always going to be bad people in this world which means that you need good people to combat bad people. And I'm not so naive as to believe that war is cut and dry as good versus bad, good versus evil, because it's not, it's murky, it's political. Um, there are no, there may never be any true heroes in war, uh, but there certainly are true evil people. And they oftentimes find themselves in the middle of a war. So conversely, the other side of the question, another thing that we also don't hear about is the kindness and compassion witnessed amidst a battleground. So were there any moments that really resonated with you as far as that element, even though you were in you know, a very, very dangerous arena at the time? Um, the Marines that I went to war with are the most humane people I've ever known, um, almost even more so than Boston firefighters. Um, because you look at the nature of the description. I mean, Marine Corps infantry, people think of the, your mission statement, locate, close with, and destroy the enemy. You, it, you're, you're there to kill the enemy. That's your mindset. That's your mission. That's what you're going out there to ultimately do. To have that mission and have that mindset, but be able to, to turn that switch to go into a humanitarian mission in the middle of a gunfight, in the middle of a war, that's what separates... I would say good versus bad. That's what separates us versus the enemy. Um, I've witnessed incredible moments of humanity and humanitarian action in the middle of a gunfight. Um, Marines e exposing themselves to even more danger. 
in order to prevent civilian casualties, in order to get civilians and children and women out of a situation, to be able to have the mental strength and the mental resiliency and the, the honor to do that in the face of being threatened with self-preservation is incredible. Um, the Marines that I served with, the, the ones who didn't make it home and the ones who did, they, they're my heroes because they define to me what it is to be an American and what it is to be a human being and to, to, to be able to maintain that distinction in the midst, in the midst of war, which is hell on earth. It's incredible. And, and again, that, that is what separates us and that is what makes us who we are. Yeah, well, thank you for that perspective. And like I said, it's just not one that we get. And then you hit the nail on the head. People forget how young these men and women are, almost children that we're sending off to do these things. And then there's this kind of two-dimensional, either beat your chest, wave a Bible and you know fly an American flag, or as we see, sadly, even with, with law enforcement these days, the polar opposite. And you look back, obviously, a lot of people enlisted this time around, but you look at the Vietnam era, a lot of those people were sent there you know, against their will, still did what they were asked to do for their country, then would come back and spat on and, you know, vilified. So it's it's important that, as you said, we humanize these individuals that left their families, their mothers, their fathers, their brothers, their sisters, went off to a foreign war, saw and did some horrific things, and then had to come back and just slot right back into society again. Oh, it's a difficult, um, I mean, like you said, the, the military now, my ver- my military career was 100% volunteer. And you compare and contrast that to the Vietnam era where there was a draft. And you talk about, you know, honor and nobility and the, the hard right against the very easy wrong. They were there against their will. They were, they were drafted into the military. They were sent to a combat zone. They were forced to fight in a war that many of them probably disagreed with. But in that moment, you know, there's, there's obviously an aspect of self-preservation. They were going to have to kill or be killed. Um, but many of them, more than will ever get the credit they deserve, um, maintained their humanity towards others. And I, it, it, the Vietnam War is such a, a, an example of the dangers of painting people with broad brushes and only telling one side of the story. Um, there were Americans who did horrible things to other people during the Vietnam War, and that can't be overlooked. But you have to put everything on a scale because there's always, there's two sides to every story, and the truth often lies uncomfortably somewhere in the middle. And we're not excusing horrible things that Americans did in Vietnam and horrible things that Americans did in Iraq or Afghanistan. But if you're going to tell that side of the story, you owe it to the people who served to tell the other side of the story. And that's where I think the media gets it twisted. I think that's where society is led down the wrong path, where if we're going to talk about war and we're going to talk about occupational cancer and we're going to talk about mental health, if we're going to actually have truly transparent discussions about emotional hot button issues, then check your ego at the door, check your personal beliefs at the door. Let's all sit down and let's have the total conversation about how we got there why we got there, and who actually did what. Absolutely. And I think that you're less likely then to jump into any conflict if you truly understand the cost. Mm-hmm. If, 
<laughs> anyone who truly understands war will never wants to go to war. You know, I, I pray that you know, I'm, a, I'm a father now, I'm a new father. And I pray that my son never has to think about something like that. You know, um, if he wants to join the military, I will completely support him. Um, I'll be taking him to the recruiter's office to, to cut through <laughs> some of the, some of the nonsense. Um, you know, we, people who fought in war, we want peace more than anyone because we've witnessed firsthand the, the atrocities that take place, the loss of life, the, the loss of limbs, families destroyed, countries destroyed. No one ever wants to see that. Um, but we also carry with us the burden of responsibility and the burden of reality that time back to what I said, as long as there are bad people, you need good people. As long as there are people who are going to attack innocent people, you need people who are going to defend them. And the, the cold, hard reality is that in order to stop all of this, both sides need to lay down their arms and both sides need to agree to not continue to do this. And unfortunately, there are people out there who are never going to do that. And because they won't, we can't. You were injured. Um, so talk to me about your deployment in Fallujah. And also, when I think of that being British, I think of the, the, the British military being, you know, very strong presence in that. So did yep. you did you work alongside them and then walk me through your injury? So the uh, the British Royal Marines, but uh, we, we did work with them a little bit in Afghanistan. Um they had an operation, uh, a pretty substantial operations base to the north of us um, in southern Afghanistan. Uh, the British Royal Marines are gangsters, man. And I always, we always got a kick out of them because you could never tell if they were being serious or not. Like if it was tongue in cheek putting us on because the British Royal Marines would always come to us and say like, oh, the, the U.S. Marines, the American Marines, you guys are crazy. Like, you know, you guys are insane. Oh, we can't hold a candle to you guys. And then they would go out and just be out. They were maniacs. They were they were hardcore professionals, but man, they were hardcore. So we would be sitting around watching them doing this and watching the approach that they took. They were wild. And then they would come back and kind of laugh at us like, oh, no, you guys are crazy. You guys. So um, I love the Brits, man. They were they were funny. Um, like I said, consummate professionals. They were great war fighters. They were great leaders. Um I, like I, I worked with them in Afghanistan. I didn't see them in Iraq, just where we were, but I, I did deploy. Um, I was a second battalion, six Marines, and um, I was part of a deployment to Fallujah, Iraq in 2007. So how did you find yourself injured on that deployment? Uh, so on that deployment, uh, it was kind of just, um, you know, I, I was there the duration of the employment of the deployment. Um, you know, just the, I kind of broke down uh, based off our, our operational tempo. We, we did, a, we pushed a lot of patrols, um, you know, and basically what ended up happening was over the course of several incidents, um, I ended up with some uh, pretty substantial uh, nerve damage in both of my, both of my feet. Now, is that something you've been able to rehab or is that something you carried into the fire service too? Nope. So I, uh, clean bill of health. Um, I was able to rehab completely. Um, I had surgery while I was still in the military. Um, now military medicine, you, know, you can go one of two ways. They get a bad rap, but I uh, know they, they took care of me. Um, I did need some treatment and, uh, some corrective measures after, um, my first appointment to Fallujah. Um, 
but I was, I was able to rehab through it. Uh, a couple surgeries, um, was able to get back on track and I was actually able to get back with my unit to deploy to Afghanistan. Okay. So you went through all this medical treatment, you got back to full health. So then walk me through Afghanistan and, and getting the medal for not moving fast enough. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the enemy sharpshooter badge. Um, so like I said, I, I was, um, I was coming up on the end of my four year enlistment. Um, I had been through the ringer a little bit, uh, with some medical procedures, but I was able to rehab to get back to full duty. And I was faced with a decision. Um, you know, my time was up, uh, go home or, uh, go back to your unit with an extension and, uh, go to Maja Afghanistan. And, um, it wasn't even a decision. Um, I didn't do, certainly didn't do anything noble. I, I did what others did for me. Um, and it's actually, it's, it's such a small world and such a small community. Um, when I first joined the Marine Corps, my first deployment, um, some of our senior leadership in the platoon and in the company, they had already done their time. They had done their four years. They had done their deployments they had more than earned the right to go home. And um, our unit was tasked with the deployment to Fallujah, which we knew was going to be, you know, a sizable deployment. And um, they signed extensions and they stayed with the unit because they saw how many new junior Marines that we had. And in combat experience is essential. And um, they put their, they put the mission and their Marines ahead of themselves. And they stayed with the unit and they did an additional deployment. And um, two of them are fellow Boston firefighters now, which is, which is really special. And they're, they're two incredible people. And I'm, I'm honored to call them fellow Marines and I'm honored to call them brother firefighters. They, they're really, they're two very special guys. Um, and I, I saw what they did. And they, they, like I said, they had done their time. They had been through their war. And it was their time to go home, but they decided that it was their time to stay with the unit and continue to lead. Um, they did that for me. So when I had the opportunity, I, I had no choice. I, I, they set the example for me and they're great people. Uh, so I, I signed an extension and I went back with my unit uh, to go to Afghanistan. And it was, um, I'll never regret that decision. Um, I think I would, I know that, I would deeply regret had I gone the other way. Um, now I'm very proud of that unit. I'm very proud to be a Marine. I had a lot of close brothers who I knew were going over there. Um, and I, 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 I didn't want them to go alone. You know, I'm was certainly not a, a caliber of Marine who was going to sway the war effort, or, you know, um, but I just wanted to be there. If they were going to go through that, I was going to go through that. Beautiful. So talk to me about the sharpshooter badge then. Oh, so that was, um, yeah, we were uh, the, the, the uh, compound, the operations base that we were at. Um, I've been, been taking contact for a few days. Um, it was a very contested AO. It was a hot AO, um, a little bit more so to the north and south than we were at right in the middle, but it, it was still kinetic. Um some Marine patrols were out. Um, they took contact. They took some casualties. They were taken wounded. So uh, the team that I was on, we were linked up with Afghan uh, partner forces, Afghan National Guard, Afghan police mostly. Um, so we took our team of Afghans up the road um, 
to support Marines and Afghans who, who were outside the wire taking contact. And uh, we, we pushed up north to a little bit more contested area. Um, I was up towards the front of the patrol and uh, I, they got a shot off and uh, I, I was wounded. Um, I, the, uh, the 762 round uh, defeated the buttstock of my rifle, um, pri- uh, partially defeated the body armor that I was wearing and uh, ended up in my chest. So did that take you to local hospital, back to Germany? Where was it that you found yourself after that? <laughs> so it's, that's, it's a, no, that's a funny story because um, I, I was uh, medevaced via air, uh, d- the dust off unit of the army who are their heroes. They're incredible. That's an incredible unit. Um, they got me to a field hospital uh, in Helmand province, uh, Southern Helmand. And uh, they kind of have like the intake nurses and they're there, you know, they're bringing guys, they're bringing maniacs in from the field. They're all spun up, you know, um, and they're there to just kind of take the temperature in the room down. So I, I think she knew she was lying to me, but she said, um, you know, hey, they're going to bring you into surgery. You, you know, you, you're doing all right, but you're in tough shape. Um, you know, when you come out of surgery, when you wake up, you're going to be in Germany and this will all be over. And I was like, all right, whatever. Um, and then I woke up. Uh, um, whenever however long later and uh still in afghanistan (laughs) um so i I was i was fortunate uh at the time um i wasn't able to be kazavak to germany um so they did their thing in afghanistan and actually kept me in country uh i did uh field rehab um at, at at the medical center and uh a short time later i was actually able to get on a bird and rejoin my unit uh back down in Maja. Wow, amazing. So what made you decide to finally transition out? And then what was your transition like? Because again, when we talk about the fire service and mental health, and obviously the military as well, it seems like a very a common denominator again is that jarring transition. You you literally would die for any of the men and women that you were around at that point. Now, whether it's wounded, whether it's just you know retiring out, transitioning, um, getting fired, whatever that looks like, all of a sudden, you're not in that country anymore or in our profession, you know, the, the bay doors come down behind you and a lot of people really struggle and they've lost that tribe, they've lost that purpose. So, you know, what what made you make that decision? And then what were those couple of years like for you after that? So um, my decision to leave the Marine Corps was a difficult one um, because I had already, I guess I, I did my four years. I ended up doing almost two more on top of that. So I kind of broke the seal of career retention. Um, and I, I genuinely wanted to stay and, um, you know, I had all I had ever wanted to do was be a Boston firefighter. Um, but then I started thinking about maybe, you know, maybe I was meant to be a Marine and maybe I was meant to stay a Marine. Um, and it was one of, if not the hardest decisions I've ever had to make, but it, it just got to a point where, you know, I, the, my unit was turning right around and they were going to go, they were turning right back around to Afghanistan. They were going to Sangin Valley, which is another contested AO. It's a hot AO. And it was one hell of a mission for them. And I wanted to be a part of that. And then I knew that after that mission, we would have come back and there would have been another deployment and I would have wanted to be a part of that. And the, it speaks to a greater part of life. There's always going to be 
another mission. There's always going to be another deployment. There's always going to be another fire to go to. Um, you do have to take a step back at times and take a tactical pause and reevaluate or just evaluate the situation. And I realized, you know, at that moment, if I, if I had reenlisted then and gone to Sangin and stayed in two, six, then, then that was it. It wasn't going to be eight years. It was going to be 20. And that would have been the rest of my life. And, um, I would have been honored to have spent the rest of my life as a U.S. Marine, but it, it, it was time. Um, it was a, it was a rough five and a half, six years, took its toll on me, took its toll on my family. Um, so I decided, I decided to come home and, um, I immediately regretted that decision. I, because you talked about loss of purpose, loss of self, loss of identity. Um, in order to survive war, you have to make that your identity. You have to, that's, that's how you protect yourself. That's how you stay alive. Going from zero to 60 isn't the problem. It's going from 60 to zero. That's the problem. And you wake up one morning there's no uniform to put on. There's no weapon to clean. There's no formation to go to. There's no enemy to fight. There's, there's quiet. And that silence was deafening in my ears um, for a couple of years. And to some extent, maybe always will be. Um, you know, idle hands are not a good thing. Idle hands of people who used to use their hands for war is a very dangerous thing to themselves. And when you don't have, when you're not confronted with the enemy anymore, you become the enemy. The, the face in the mirror looking back at you is the enemy because now that's the person who left. That's the person who quit. That's the person who gave up their identity. That's the person who left Marines behind. That's the person who's responsible for fellow Marines who got killed and lost their lives and lost their legs. You're the enemy. When you can't fight the Taliban, when you can't fight Al Qaeda, you fight yourself. And it's, it's devastating. And, you know, you're lashing out at yourself, which means you're lashing out at other people around you. And I spent several years so angry with myself and so angry at the people around me because they did, they just didn't get it. They didn't understand what I had been through. They didn't understand what we had been through. Um, and I think that's a journey for any veteran transitioning back into civilian life. Um, and it never really goes away. Nothing ever really goes away. And I, I said this on, uh, to Jed Berg, uh, on the Jedberg cast. Um, don't try to erase it. Don't try to just completely wipe out what's such a fundamental part of who you are because you're only going to successfully erase yourself. It, embrace it. Embrace mistakes that you made. Embrace successes that you had because for better or worse, they got you to where you are now. And whether that's a Boston firefighter, whether that's a lawyer, whether that's someone who's struggling just to get their life back on track, you woke up. You woke up this morning. So whatever you've been through has at least gotten you to a point where you woke up today and you have a fighting chance. Don't try to cut that out of your life. Um, and that, that took me years to try to understand. I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to understand it. Um, embrace it and, and, and use it to your advantage. Make your weaknesses your strengths. 
Well, firstly, thank you for repeating that because I, I heard that on that podcast and that did resonate with me. I think one of the issues that we have is when we transition out, when we're still in the job and you're trying to fix whatever problems, your goal is back to normal. Well, for me, for example, 14 years in the fire service coming out the other end, what is normal when you've seen the things that you've seen and you've, you know, you've destroyed your body through the shift work and all these other things, the exposures that you've had, um, the injuries that you've had, you're not ever going to find, you know, you 14 years prior or you prior to 9-11. Mm-hmm. So we're almost chasing this carrot on a stick. So as you said, kind of trying to fix the areas that you know you can fix, but understand that you in 2022 is just going to be very different than you in 2002. There's no, there's no going back. There's not. And um, you can never change history. You can never, you never change. You can't change what happened yesterday, let alone 10 years ago, let alone 20 years ago. What you can change is the way you react to it. If you've, you know, like from, for me, it was, okay, whatever you're doing to address this or whatever you're doing to pretend to address this clearly isn't really working. You're, you're getting by, but you're not okay. You're, you don't have a steady foundation. You're not going to change the things that brought you here. You're not going to change the things that bothered you. You know, I have, I have a scar through my chest that's never going away. Um, what I can change is the way I respond to it. Um, and it's trial and error. And it, 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 it takes some people months. It takes some people years. But there is a, there is a path to some semblance of balance and solace for every veteran who's out there. And I think for a lot of us, it is service to others. It's being a firefighter. It's being a police officer. It's being an EMT because there's a reason why so many veterans go into those professions. And at face value, they're easy to identify. You wear a uniform again. You're in a rank structure again. You have very clear cut prescribed duties and responsibilities. You're operating within a team. Those are all great. And at face value, I think that's what attracts a lot of veterans to these professions. It goes so much deeper than that, though, because it's it's an internal mission. It's a personal mission. You are once again a part of something that you believe is more important than you. The, the fire service is more important to me than me as an individual. The, the needs of someone inside of a burning building are more important to Boston firefighters than themselves in that moment. And it's important to have those conversations. And I try to get out there and talk about these things because, you know, I, I, I'm fortunate enough to represent consummate professionals who don't pat themselves on the back, who don't seek accolades and glory for themselves and, and it's commendable. So I'm, I'm not seeking glory for them. I'm seeking recognition of what it is that they do and what, what they deserve, which is to, to be treated fairly and, and to be respected. Respect is earned and it should be afforded to those who have earned it. Absolutely. We're just touching on that one point before we progress into your fire service career. One of the 
biggest, I think, misunderstood elements. You talked about needing to identify as that Marine when you're in the, you know, the theater of war. And I agree completely. When you're in the middle of a structure fire, you're not going to be thinking about kittens and rainbows. You know, you're thinking about right hand search and let me find that, that kid that's supposed to be in here. But what we, what some people forget is if you think of, of a man or a woman as a yin and a yang, you know, it was that hard, you know, um, I think it's the yin that got you through the fire training, got you through all the PT to prepare, got you up the aerial without, you know, quitting or the collapse maze. But it was the soft side. It was a kindness and compassion that got you up in the morning and said, I'm going to go through all this because I want to serve because I want to protect mm-hmm. my city. You progress into the Marines, the fire service. And, you know, a few years in, 10 years in, you start to forget that kindness and compassion element. And that's where you see a lot of that burnout, a lot of that compassion fatigue. And you start to identify as a firefighter. And I think that lack of compassion towards your, you know, towards others is, is a warning sign, but towards yourself is the big issue. Now, when you transition out, you're hanging on to that identity and you've got the stickers and the t-shirts and the hats and everything. But you're forgetting that it was that kindness and compassion. It wasn't the, the, the calendar, you know, firefighter. It wasn't the quote unquote hero. It was your desire to serve. So as you transition out, as you said, if you can find another way of serving, it may be in uniform. It may be as a union president or starting a podcast because you're tired of going to firefighters funerals or whatever it is. It may not have that ego satisfying element that a uniform does. But you're still on the same road. And I think that's the hardest thing. You navigate the ego, take a step back and go, Paul Combs, his art, phenomenal. A picture speaks a thousand words. He sits in his home sketching now, but he's still impacting the world. You know, so, so many of these people, I think if they can realize that they, they're still on exactly the same path, it just looks different from the outside looking in. Absolutely. And, uh, you, you know, you mentioned just now, you mentioned burnout and, um, it's something we have to be always guarded against for ourselves and fellow firefighters. Um, and it's ever present. And we, we actually, we have a situation going on in Boston right now. That's not unique to us. It's, 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 uh, it's an epidemic across the entire country, which is the opioid opioid epidemic. And there's a particular area of Boston. Um, it was known as methadone mile, the mass and cast area where it's, this it's such a prime example of where first responders can be burned out and why we have to avoid it and why we have to have the city step up and help us help others, but also help ourselves. Um, the conditions down there are deplorable and it's inhuman and it's, it's dehumanizing to the people who are down there who are victims of substance abuse, who are victims of mental health crisis, who are victims of a system that can't seem to find a way to do the right thing and help them. Um, It's also dehumanizing to the first responders, to the firefighters, the EMTs and the police officers who are just thrown at that problem every single day without any reinforcement, without any plan, without any support. And we're seeing it accelerate burnout in the fire companies and the firehouses that are assigned to those areas. You know, you talked about after a certain period of time, you start looking at people differently and you don't have that compassion and that emotion 
that that humanitarian approach that got you into this profession that kept you going through this profession. Um, and what I refuse to tolerate and what I will not accept is the finger to be pointed at my members when they say, well, they they've burnt out. They're no longer fit for this. They overheard them say something or they saw them on a cell phone camera, do something. And it's like, you know what? I'm not making excuses for, for any actions that are unacceptable and we'll address that and we'll deal with that. But what about your unacceptable actions? What about refusing to give them the support that they needed in dealing with that situation day in and day out? Mental health services, physical health services. How about coming up with a plan that's going to actually address this issue instead of just turning a blind eye to it? Because it doesn't affect them when the media doesn't cover it, when they don't go down there, when voters in the general the public doesn't see it or isn't allowed to see it. Now it no longer affects the elected officials. They're separated from that. They're protected. But problem didn't go away. It's actually getting worse. And now it's spreading to our first responders. And it's unacceptable. And what's really unacceptable is the dehumanizing treatment of the people down there and the dehumanizing approach towards the first responders because they expect them to be rock solid with no help, they won't pay attention to them when they're doing their jobs under adverse conditions. But man, that one time that they make a mistake, that one time that they show a human reaction and maybe say something that they, okay, shouldn't have said, they're going to jump all over them for that. Now they're going to compound their stress and their, their, their mental health fatigue by, by punishing them, by suspending them, by threatening their job. It's completely unacceptable. Well, I mean, that literally mirrors many, many conversations I've had. I I was appalled, a perfect example, appalled during COVID, and obviously we'll get into vaccine mandates because I've covered that on here several times as well. Um, But I was appalled coming from not only a first responder background, but also a fitness and, you know, coaching and athlete background as well, that we had a captive audience the last two years a great opportunity to address the mental health problems that we see, the obesity epidemic that we're in, and to bolster local farms, to put healthy food back into schools, to kick out the fast food companies from our college campuses, to remove soda machines from our children's schools and put water. You can survive on water, you know, for the day or a, a, a very a variety of, of healthier drinks. And nothing, absolutely nothing. To the point where that kind of conversation was was heresy. You know, you, how dare you discuss obesity? This is this is a virus that's killing everyone. And I see the same in this conversation. In in COVID, for example, in the UK, they came out at five o'clock every night and they clapped, and then they all went back in their house whilst the first responders and doctors and nurses were still from their families, still working night and day with no PPE and limited beds, because that was it. It was a token to help them with this addiction epidemic that we're in we have to take a step back and look at the countries that in my opinion have done it right where they've decriminalized or legalized addiction that doesn't mean you can go to a store and buy drugs it just means that if you're caught as an addict you don't get sent to prison which we do in this country and so therefore you cut the head off the snake of the the uh criminal element that's selling 
these addicts what they need. So you take those addicts and you put them back in the medical space. So they're not living under bridge and they're not calling 911 over and over and over again because that's the only way they can get to a hospital to get a meal, get a roof over their head. And um, we're not having this, this holistic, universal conversation with this problem. And so then take law enforcement. Where is the conversation that, you know, the streets of America are literally like a damn war zone. And they're getting worse and worse and worse. But you don't see that in Reykjavik or Oslo or, you know, Lisbon in Portugal. So, again, that's because their policy as a nation is very different to ours. So we've empowered the very elements that you and I respond to, whether it's, you know, uh, ambulance or a fire engine or, or a police car. And yet, as you said, it's out of sight, out of mind for the, for the, uh, the general population. And then there's, there's a kind of, uh, you know, a newsworthy story will happen. A police officer did this or a firefighter did that. And all of a sudden, everyone's appalled and offended. So I think it's completely irresponsible that these sound bites say one thing. But if you look at the actions, it is the polar opposite that happens over and over and over again. No, I completely agree. And even to your point, um, they go, you know, there's, there's politically motivated narratives and agendas to go after law enforcement, which ultimately bleeds over to all of public safety, firefighters and EMTs in no short order. Um, and it's frustrating because, like I said, the, I, I stick to the membership that I represent, Boston Firefighters and, and the fire service. Um, they're not looking for accolades. They're not looking for awards. They're merely asking for the respect that they've earned. It's not a question of whether or not they've earned it. That's not up for debate. Now, we need to look at things on an individual case-by-case basis. Firefighters are not perfect. Police officers are not perfect. They're humans. So they're, by nature, they have some inherent flaws. We all do. What I'm very frustrated by and what I will not tolerate is just the casting and the passing of judgment on entire professions and entire groups of people based on the actions of a very small few. There are firefighters who do certain things that the consequences of their own actions are that they should no longer be firefighters. We should be held to a higher standard. We, we are held to a higher standard. We should be held to a higher standard. It needs to be enforced. You'll get no argument from me on that. Where you will get an argument from me is when it starts to carry over. And now because one firefighter or one police officer did this, now we're going to treat them all a certain way. They would never tolerate that for themselves. They would never tolerate that from other groups of people, nor should they. You're not going to get away with doing it to us. Um, And it's it's a very difficult conversation to have because we have some societal issues. And I think the mainstream media... I don't even know if they're, they're, they're evil. I think they're business people and they run and they say whatever's going to get them the most clicks, the most likes, the most shares and the most airtime and negativity seems to lead, you know, discipline of police officers, discipline of firefighters, controversy, scandal, these things lead. Um, that's a societal issue that, you know, we have to address, but I don't know if we'll ever be able to walk back. And I'm not trying to get too big picture here, but it's take people on an individual case by case basis. If what they did merits punishment, punish them accordingly. 
if they've earned respect and they've and they're doing their jobs the right way, treat them accordingly. We get very wrapped up in political agendas, political narratives, big money topics, and you know the root of the majority of evil is big money and big politics and a lot of big business. I had a. a- legendary cbs journalist on the show larry doyle who um interviewed nelson mandela the morning he got out of prison so that was a kind of you know respect that he had and his his uh observation of news today was exactly that he said they were bought by corporations who's instead of reporting the news it became we have to make money with the news and so this is Mm -hmm. the issue that we've seen and so in this reporting it's very very black and white well i had another guest on lisa hule who defends first responders who have you know committed a crime of some sort but the 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 job the ptsd element is factored into the defense and that's another thing that you don't see discussed you have a gray area officer involved shooting well how many shifts in a row was he he or she forced to do what kind of level of training did they have you know were they one to a car or two to the car i mean all these things that compounded in that one mistake in that one moment and you look in the sleep medicine world the ability to make the correct decision in a split second when you are sleep deprived is so, so, you know, such a, a near impossibility. And I don't know if you've ever had this, but towards the end of my career, I would drive onto the apron. I couldn't remember if I'm supposed to go left or right to a call. That's how damn tired I was. So I can't imagine is someone reaching for a driver's license or a gun having to make that, you know, mm-hmm. three in the morning. So even that, like some, not all, there are some people that should never even put the damn uniform on in the first place and they're a disgrace to our profession. But there's also a lot of men and women that started off one way and then they devolve to a different kind of person. You know, and then there is addiction, there is domestic violence and some other areas. And the question needs to be then, you know, are they, have they just become an evil person now? Do we need to get rid of them? Or were they in crisis before this behavior change? And do we actually need to, to, to lift them up and take care of them? And I think that's probably one of the hardest things that you have to address. Correct. And take it one step further. You, you know, were, were they in crisis before this critical incident occurred? Um, could, could there have been preventative measures and preventative maintenance taken before they made it to crisis before they even reached that level. Um, you know, we, as firefighters, you know, we spend so much time and money on preventative maintenance of our equipment because it's going to keep us alive. You know, we, 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 uh, we PM the fire trucks, we PM the apparatus every morning, sometimes twice a day. Um, Daily checks of the SCBA, daily checks of the tools, the chainsaws, the hand tools, the power tools, the hearse tools. We do all of that because it's our job and because we know it's going to keep us alive at a critical incident and at a fire. Um, And coming back to the the things that make us great at a fire don't make us that great at taking care of ourselves. But now we're trying to turn the page. And I think by and large, we've done a great job of doing it. But where is the support? Where, you know, if if elected officials and businesses and the media, particularly elected officials, you want to be serious about this? Let's get serious now. Give us the money that we need for these services and resources to prevent firefighters from getting into crisis situations. Um, Don't always just be of the mindset to attack and scapegoat, be of the mindset to support. 
before things go bad. And that has to be the mentality. You know, we're, we're pushing to get to the table and stay at the table to have very frank, very open, very honest conversations about these things. And, and we're not going away. I'm not going away. We're going to continue to advocate for these meetings, for these conversations. We need to see more from the other side. We need to see a legitimate buy-in and acceptance of being a part of this. We have the very real opportunity to stop problems before they happen. Isn't that what this is all supposed to be about? You know, firefighting, and you know this, we got to be one of the only major industries out there that actively try to put ourselves out of business. Smoke detectors, fire preventions, fire codes, building inspections. You know, we're, we're up against media and political machines that everything they do is kind of by and large geared around perpetuating problems so that they can stand on them and they can exploit them. And we're over here trying to prevent fires, literally and figuratively, and, and we don't get much support on it. And it's frustrating. There needs to be more he- mental health initiatives. There need to be more physical health initiatives. There need to be more open conversations about what we need to do to prevent things from escalating to a point where bad things happen. I agree 100%. Now, speaking of that, I want to kind of walk through some of the wellness changes that you have made in your department. But I think one of the first times that I put Boston and wellness together was your take no excuse me take no smoke campaign that was initiated mm-hmm. from all the men and women that you lost from cancer so correct kind of walk me through that and then how ultimately that took you to to o2x as well so that to be honest with you that's more on the department side uh the take no smoke campaign predates my service with the union but I was on the department when we did that um that was basically it was a positive awareness campaign to really shed some light internally and externally on the dangers that we face and the negative repercussions of them. And it was, you know, this was kind of, this was in the beginning of the fight against occupational cancer. And it was, um, like I said, it was an awareness campaign to, to get people to wear their PPE and to utilize the SCBA utilize the, the, the fire hoods. Um, and it was positive. It was, a, it was the right thing to do. Um, and it was a great entry level campaign of awareness to then bring us towards the bigger issues. You know, you can only stand on PPE for so long before now we have to address, Hey, that PPE is actually a contributing factor. You know, the PPE that we have to wear to protect ourselves from burns that we're supposed to wear to protect ourselves from carcinogens, well, they're full of carcinogens. They have PFASs at unsafe levels. So it was great awareness, great initiative, and now we need to build on that momentum and really start going after all the other issues involved in it. Um, Boston Fire Department, first in the nation, that's our department slogan, our motto, and we take a lot of pride in that. I take a lot of pride in that as union president. we, we have always been at the forefront of firefighting. We've always been at the forefront of the fire service. So we're going to be at the forefront of this issue. Um, and we've, we've done a lot of great work. Um, we enjoy a by and large, very productive professional relationship with our administration in, at headquarters. Um, our commissioner is very good to deal with on matters like this. 
um, the safety, health and wellness, the O2X, the, the PPE discussions, um, everything's beginning to trend in the right direction where the rubber really has to meet the road is follow through. We're doing a great job of talking about it. We're doing a great job of making ourselves aware of it. Now it's time to really get down to business and start affecting viable, positive changes that are actually going to have a measurable impact. You know, we've been talking about occupational cancer for a long time now. We've been talking about building materials and carcinogens for a while now. What are we actually doing about it? We can't stall. We can't get sidetracked. We have to keep moving forward because any delay, any sidetrack, any time we stall, there's at least one other member out there who's going to face a cancer diagnosis that they maybe didn't have to deal with if we had gotten our act together now and stayed focused on the mission. Well, how many uh, active firefighters do you have at any one time? Overall, right now, uh, Boston, we, right now, I believe we have about 1,520. Okay. And for, if my uh, research is right, you lost 190 to cancer since 1990, I think is right. That's correct. So, I mean, that's a huge percentage of the overall you know, workforce. Mm-hmm. So with that, I mean, as we touched on before, sleep, nutrition, mental health, you know, all these, these other areas are absolutely going to move the needle in the right direction when it comes to not only cancer, but, you know, obesity and heart disease and all these things that also kill our men and women. Talk to me about the introduction of O2X because from talking to some of them, you know, the, one of the hardest things in any fire department is the implementation of a wellness program. Funnily enough, union, you know, some unions actually oppose them, which I think is fucking insane, but that's a whole separate conversation. Mm-hmm. So, but you guys did, you, you took this program on with both hands, you implemented it in all your new hires. So kind of what have you seen as a firefighter from the inside looking out on the impact of that on overall workforce health, on, on physical performance, and then on the budget side as well? So I, I see it, um, you know, O2X and all the safety, health and wellness initiatives, we are becoming a more physically fit, more capable fire department, which is, which is fantastic on every level. You know, um, as, as a union, we promote and take pride in union labor and being consummate professionals and unions deliver the best quality labor and services in that field, bar none. And in order to do that, we have to be as good as we possibly can at our jobs. And when your job is fighting fires and providing emergency services, you have to be physically fit. You have to be, you know, mentally healthy. You have to, you know, we are held to a higher standard. We should hold ourselves to a higher standard. Um, we've seen a lot of positive impacts. We really have. Um, Physical fitness is definitely on the rise. Um, you know, mental health services are definitely on the rise, and it's good. Our Boston firefighters have so many more options and resources available to them now than they did 10 years ago, which is great, and we need to keep moving in that direction. Um, but it's funny, you, you did mention how there are, there are labor unions, public safety labor unions, who oppose some of the safety, health, and wellness initiatives. And it, at face value, it's difficult to defend and it's difficult to justify. I am going to defend them with explanation on some of it because 
they don't oppose a healthy workforce. What they're afraid of, and usually it's justified based off experience, and it's a concern that I, I always have to keep in mind, is how can this be used against us? And that's why I take a lot of exception to the um, the political element when it comes to public safety, because, okay, demonstrate to us that you really want to help us because we really want to help people. That's why we're here. We wouldn't be here if we weren't about that. Demonstrate to us that you really want to help us. Um, there are other departments that have actually seen in certain situations, the safety, health and wellness initiatives get hijacked and weaponized against the membership. They, they go for a, a health screening and it identifies something. Now, all of a sudden, they're off the job. And it's, wait a minute, what? No, I, I was told to do this. I was told this is what I should do to make myself a better firefighter. But now because I availed myself of this service, now I can't be a firefighter anymore. That's toxic. And we can't have that. And uh, uh, it ties right into the mental health services as well, the substance abuse services, because if the very same group or body that's telling you to come down and telling you to come in and get help, if they turn around and punish you based off of what they found out about you because you tried to get help, no one's ever going to go for help. No one's going to do the cancer body scans. No one's going to do the blood draws if that information is released and used for other purposes. Um, so it is a very fine line that labor unions in public, public safety labor unions have to walk. And it's why trust is so essential. And unfortunately, sometimes we're dealing with um, elected officials or political administrations that have demonstrated to us that we can't fully trust them. And it's toxic because caught in the middle are firefighters who just want to get healthy, who just want to know if they have cancer. And, and but they're always looking over their shoulder and it makes it it's the number one obstruction that I run into and I see in trying to promote these things because rightfully so members ask who sees this information where does it go and most importantly can this ever or would this ever be used against me and all it takes is one time for the administration or for the city to misuse that information and use it to harm someone's career that's it we're never going to be able to get membership participation again and it's too bad because I don't blame them. And it's really too bad because one of them is going to get sick and die because of it when they otherwise didn't have to. That's how serious this is. And that's what elected officials have to start understanding. This is life or death to us. It's that serious. So how do people navigate that? Because I know, for example, in law enforcement, you know, if, if you seek some sort of counseling, then they're all you know worried about losing their gun and the badge. But then obviously you've got HIPAA and the other side. So uh, what have you found that you've put in place that have you have, have kind of underlined the fact that, okay, this cannot be used against us? Because I see a lot of unions, I don't think it's that's their mentality at all. I think it's based on what I'm physically looking at. They know damn well that if a fitness standard was put in place, 
they would have to get their fat asses back into shape because right now they wouldn't be get to the fucking top you know floor of a building and that's completely unacceptable to be wearing a firefighter uniform as well so you know that playing devil's advocate that's what i see more often than not is the self-serving in unions they're protecting their own fucking asses instead of taking care of the entire population and this is you know just certain ones so to mitigate what you said so we can remove that excuse from the people i've just talked about how do we protect the members and still encourage them to get the the fitness and the the wellness screens that will save their lives so that's where and it comes back to getting all sides of every issue to come to the table in good faith and work these things out um there need to be safeguards in place now obviously if there are situations where someone reveals something that makes them uh, a, a detriment or a threat to themselves or others. Okay. You, you can't be on the line right now. That that's, I will have no union is going to, should have opposition to that. If they've expressed that they are a threat to themselves or a threat to others, you can't be out there serving the public. Um, we're going to get you the help that you need. And now the goal is to get you back to a point where you can go back out there and serve the public. Um, and it's just building these safeguards, but it, it is, it is difficult to have these conversations sometimes because you always have to wonder how honest some of the other people are. And the, there's always a political element to it. And it's always going to be there. There's never going to be, you're never going to be able to totally eradicate it. Um, one thing that we've definitely been doing is looking to build as many resources to our memberships from the union side of the house. And, I'm not discrediting any of the headquarters or the city services. They're viable programs. They've done a lot of good for our members, but a lot of it is just kind of a mental block where when you get in trouble, when you're, when you're facing discipline, you're going to be disciplined down at headquarters and you're going to be disciplined by superior officers. Now there's just a mental hang up there. You shouldn't have to go to the same people in the same building, in the same room that are going to punish you to ask for help because it's going to make people hesitate. And as we know with the mental health issue and occupational cancer, rapid detection and rapid intervention saves lives. You know, we can, if we can prevent someone from going into mental health crisis, we can prevent cancer from going from stage two to three to four to terminal. Um, So any delay is just wasting time that we otherwise need. Um, so we basically, we need to continue to build on the initiatives and the resources from the union side of the house, because the union is never going to do anything that's going to threaten anyone's employment. I'm here to protect it. Um, and we, the, the IAFF has been fantastic in expanding resources and programs available to members um, for physical health and for mental health and for substance abuse. I think the biggest thing when it comes to operating with transparency and in good faith, we need the city and the department to evaluate our programs and talk to us about them and, and allow us to continue pursuing them and to say, okay, if, if a firefighter chooses to utilize a program on the union side of the house, you know, we, we've investigated your program. You've been very transparent with us. We know that it's going to be effective. We're going to let you do the work that you need to do to help out your people because firefighters know firefighters better than anybody. Um, whether that translates into some administrative time, like we'll, we'll give them the time off that they need to complete this program. We'll put them on mod- modified duty 
to get them off of the line a little bit, kind of some decompression time. But we're, we're not of the mindset to use this to, to harm their career or harm their employment. Now, what about the uh, the budget element? So one of the big, you know, real kind of dead horses that I flog is, as we touched on at the beginning, the, uh, to me, the 42-hour work week is the gold, should be the gold standard universally in the United States of America for the fire service. You know, a lot of unions have work weeks for some reason we don't. And I don't understand why we never navigated that. But you have men and women that are working insane hours, almost double, you know, what, what you're working on your, your you know, regular work week. And so the argument I get is, oh, we can't afford it. Well, when you speak to every man and his dog in the wellness arena, the same answer comes back. If you actually give these men and women the recovery and rest that they need, there will be a huge saving on the back end of what you're paying out in injury and overtime and workman's comp and, you know, Absolutely. lawsuits and all these other things. So you kind of did that with with O2X. You brought in, you know, a wellness company. They they implemented, you know, their program in a lot of your new hires and in other parts of the department. And from what I understand, there was a marked savings. So from the financial side, I know again it wasn't your your administration that you were in specifically, but what were they able to do to convince the city of Boston to be proactive when there's so much resistance normally from most departments? Um, I, again, I, I'm not sure exactly how it was presented. However, they presented it was obviously effective. Um, I believe a lot of that came from pursuing grant money, where basically they they didn't have to go to the city budget to ask for that much money. They were able to get it through the grant process. And I think it's you know my job now is to continue the work that they did. And to your point, demonstrating to the city like, hey, this is an investment. You can invest. Five hundred, six hundred, seven hundred thousand dollars in a program, any program, any initiative. Now, that's going to save you millions down the line. And unfortunately, let's call it what it is. With the city, everything comes down to a budget. Everything comes down to dollars and cents. Hey, if that's what it comes down to, let me show you a financial incentive into taking firefighter health, safety, health, and wellness seriously. It's a couple hundred grand up front to get firefighters in better shape, to take care of their mental health, to make them better firefighters. So you're getting a better return on your initial investment because now you have an even better firefighter, an even better fire department, and you're saving millions in injury claims and disability claims and, God forbid, deaths. So with... You having the four platoon system, what is your perception as you look out beyond, you know, the Northeast and see this, you know, 2448 or federally 2424 system, knowing how your schedule alone is having an impact on your men and women? I, I, our schedule is fantastic. And I, I think we definitely should be used as an example for other departments, the four, four platoon or four for us work group. The four work group set up with the 24-hour rotations, um, it's still a grind. It, it, it's still difficult, but it's, it's not completely, it's not consistently overbearing. Um, the 24 on, 24 off, I don't know how firefighters sustain that. Um, they, that needs to be addressed. Like for us, our, our four work groups and our 24-hour rotations, um, it can be arduous. You work busy company, 
you do six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 runs after 11 o'clock at night, it's a sleepless night. You're out there. Um, it's difficult, but it's, it, it's manageable where I would like to see us be able to improve on that. Um, or we've, we've addressed our work schedule. We have our four work groups. Um, don't ever even try to take one of them away because that's not an option. What we need to do now is keep the momentum going. Um, and we need to seriously and critically address our minimum staff. Um, and I think that's where other, other departments and other unions need to get on board as well. Changing the work schedule can be difficult. Um, they need to continue to work for it, but address minimum staffing. Um, I know I've listened to some of your work and the O2X and the safety, health and wellness. It's all centered around human performance. Now, you take someone at the beginning of their tour of duty for the day, and let's say that they're at 100% or 98% capable human performance. They get a good night's sleep last night. They're not injured. They're well-rested. They had a good, healthy breakfast. They're, they're sound mentally. They're sound physically. They're ready to go. Now, as the tour progresses, however long that tour may be, you're you you are degrading to some extent. You're you're not going to be your human. Your potential output is going to decrease over the course of your tour of duty. And you look at that individually, but then you look at it collectively. Now we have a minimum staffing of one in three, one officer or one acting officer, and, and three firefighters. That's not enough. It needs to be more. It should be a minimum of one in four on every company. So you look at the potential human output at the beginning of a tour for an individual. Now look at, at the end of a tour spread across the entire group. Now you start at one and three and everybody's at a hundred percent and everybody individually loses 25% of their human performance output potential over the course of a tour. Well, now put that all together and you're down a firefighter you're now below your minimum staffing because collectively you've lost the potential output of one firefighter. Um, and again, that ties into, it's an investment. They, they talk about money, how they, this is an investment, spend money. Now put more firefighters on duty. We do not have enough firefighters on duty at any given time to do what is expected of us. We get it done, but we get it done at a detriment to ourselves. We need to increase minimum staffing you're going to see a reduction in sick time. You're going to see a reduction in injuries, and you're going to see a dramatic increase in the services that we're able to provide. So it's not just the work schedule. It's how many people you have there during the work schedule. And it needs to be increased in Boston, and it needs to be increased across the fire service. You know, we're dealing with more and more critical incidents and complex events. We still fight fires, and we do it very well. But now we're getting into responses to terrorism, which the city has had to deal with, hazardous materials, building collapses, water rescues, technical rescues, you name it, we do it. We need more people to get it done. As our mission expands, so should our resources and so should our manpower. Well, I think we're seeing the other end of the scale, though, and I witnessed this. This is the reason why I ended up in my last apartment, which I didn't want to go to, but it was I was a divorced single dad that was getting mandatory, and I, I was a firefighter paramedic, so 
I'd be on the box a lot of times. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, 24 hours of no sleep, as you said, seven o'clock in the morning, they're like, no, you need to stay for another 24 hours in a, one of the busiest rescues again. Meanwhile, my son is waiting for me to pick him up, you know? So you have that element, but I love the, the thought process too, because it also factors into, um, the, the kind of, the, the pushback I get when I talk about going to a 42 hour work week to a 24, 72 or whatever, whatever kind of, um, pattern it takes is people say, Oh, well, they'll just, they'll just do more overtime. I was like, well, how do you think you fix that? You staff your fucking fire department properly. There won't be any overtime or minimal overtime. So again, by overhiring, which actually, um, Anaheim did in California that I work for in the West coast, they did that very well because what averaged out was at least the amount of people that you needed, if not a little bit more. And so, yeah, I love that idea of that degradation because you're 100% right. We're we're like those whack-a-moles. Someone's having a good day, someone's having a bad day, and a couple in the middle. So I think that's a great idea. Well, Matt, and look at what we do. You start, we start every tour at minimum staffing. We, we, we run as light as possible. Now, that's at the beginning of the tour. You, you catch a two, three, four alarm fire. You still have the rest of the tour to get through. What if, what if one person on three different companies gets injured at that fire, which is a very real possibility. Now they're out of the fight. They're in the hospital. And now those three companies are below minimum staffing and can't go out the door for the next one. Now those neighborhoods, those neighborhoods don't have a fire, an in-service fire company. Why are we starting off with a skeleton crew in a profession that is dangerous and is, is damaging? It's, it's very well with it's, it's expected that someone's going to get hurt responding to these incidents. Why, why aren't we use, utilizing common sense here and giving us, it's, it's not additional staffing. There's no such thing as extra because we're going to need every set of hands that we can get. But, but why hamstring us from the jump? Why start at a skeleton crew? You have the money. You have the resources. Let us increase, allow us to increase our manpower. It's better for us. It's better for the city. Most importantly, it's better for the people that we serve. Well, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening that have gone through the last two years. And I was fortunate enough to transition out of the fire service before the COVID shit show hit because uh, I was looking at my fellow responders going, I'm so glad I'm not part of that. <laughs> um, and that's totally from a selfish point of view. Um, but because I see, I saw the kind of workload, initially the workload dipped from what I understand because everyone was in their home just wondering what was going to happen. And then, you know, the the the... The mania hit, thanks to the mainstream media, you know, with a little death toll ticker tape in the in the bottom right hand corner, and all of a sudden, every man and his dog's calling about you know dying of COVID. Um, and so I see our responders on the front line with no vaccines and no you know minimal PPE and and responding as always. And then the vaccines come in, and I I very very deliberately stood in the middle because that's where I truly believe where. The, there is an application for vaccines for our more vulnerable people as, as a symptom reducer. You know, if you're weighing that up, do I think that every person needed it? Absolutely not. But at the same time, I've been vehemently opposed to mandates, especially in a group that you sent out with no protection. And now we know damn well that they weren't vaccines. They weren't stopping the spread. They weren't removing you from, you know, from being part of the, of the problem. 
And so one of my former friends in, in uh, Orange County where I used to work, he was a battalion chief. He got fired for not um, not f- disciplining people on lists, many of whom actually had exemptions. So now here we are, you know, towards the end of 2022, I just had a San Francisco police officer who was fired because of the mandates. And I know a lot of agencies now are not just minimum standard, they're woefully understaffed. So I know this this whole issue hit your department as well. So kind of walk me through the beginning of this to to where you are now and what the threats is as far as, you know, the men and women that are still serving. So it it was a major issue and a major negative impact uh, across the fire service. Uh, And Boston was certainly not exempt from that. Um, And we we did what we do and. Boston Firefighters Local 718 did what this union does. And we stood up and we defended our brothers and sisters. We protected their employment to the best of our ability. Now, speaking in my role as union president, um, it's actually very clear cut and dry. And what frustrates me is that this actually is a pretty simple issue for me. And as union president, as a labor leader, this is a fundamental issue of collective bargaining. We negotiated in good faith a contractual agreement with the city of Boston that laid out how this situation was going to be handled. And it should be celebrated, not attacked publicly or in a court of law. First in the nation. First in the nation to set the example for how firefighting should be conducted and first in the nation for setting the example of how COVID should have been addressed. Now, mistakes were made on both sides. Um, That's fine. This was brand new. This came out of left field and it hit everybody and hit it hit everybody hard. But getting back to the collective bargaining piece, we negotiated with the city of Boston. We agreed and they agreed that no one should be fired over this issue. You know, you don't, you don't address a crisis by terminating the people who respond to the crisis. There's no excuse for that. There's no common sense rationalization or justification of that. It's wrong. It's plain and simple, it's wrong. So we negotiated an agreement with the city that said you, didn't, you did not have to get vaccinated. There were alternatives. There was a testing policy. It was an alternative. And that's both sides agreed to that. And it was effective. It was effective then. It's proven effective and it's effective now. Now, shortly thereafter, there was a change in administration with city elected officials. And all of a sudden, collective bargaining didn't matter. Workers' rights didn't matter respect of labor unions and workers didn't matter. And that's unacceptable. I like to break this issue down, especially coming from the union side of the house. (coughs) Check COVID at the door. Check your emotions at the door, your personal beliefs, your egos, everything. Leave it at the door, get to the table and break this down to what it is. Collective bargaining, workers' rights, the right of the working and middle class, to be treated fairly and appropriately by city government. We had an agreement. We signed it. We honor our agreements. We take that very seriously. Boston firefighters give you our word 
we stand true to it and we follow through and we don't accept others not doing that. And that's what the city tried to do. And it was, it was demoralizing and it was disheartening because here we were, I was working in the field at the time when COVID first hit, we didn't have adequate PPE. We weren't provided with adequate PPE. Vaccines didn't exist. They weren't even a topic of discussion. Treatment didn't exist. No one knew what this was. And thankfully, the majority of the population was able to isolate. They worked from home. They went on Zoom. They worked remotely. Um, I don't criticize anyone for doing that. That, that, was, that was great. Good for them. Um, but we couldn't because this is a job that we chose. When things get bad, we go to work and we stay at work until the crisis is resolved. And we did. And we didn't have adequate PPE. We didn't have adequate funding. We didn't have adequate attention from the city to take care of the first responders who were responding to this crisis. And then after all of that, after making it through, after we had members sleeping in their cars, sleeping in the basement of the house because no one knew what this was and they didn't want to bring it home to their family, to their children, to their pregnant wives. After going through all of that, after being told there's going to be a light at the end of the tunnel, we're working towards the new normal. After all of that, when we finally saw that light at the end of the tunnel and we were told that life was in the process of getting back to normal, you're going to fire our people. You're going to reward Boston firefighters who worked through the teeth of the pandemic by taking their jobs, by removing their identity, taking away their mission, taking away their drive, taking away their livelihoods, the way that they provide for themselves and their families. It's completely unacceptable. We didn't let it stand then, and we're not going to let it stand now. So where are you in that process now? Are they still trying to to take jobs or you know is there a resolution to it so there's a resolution to every situation out there um and we are we want the city to agree to a common sense resolution that doesn't involve taking firefighters jobs um as to the specifics of where we're at i can't comment specifically on matters that are still pending litigation um my concern isn't for the future employment of firefighters because we are never going to let them get fired. My concern is that this has become so politically motivated that other parties involved are allowing their egos and their political aspirations to cloud their judgment because you can debate COVID all day long. You can debate vaccines all day long. Um, what there shouldn't be a debate about is whether or not there are common sense solutions to addressing this issue, because there are. There are plenty of common sense solutions out there and not a single one of them ever involves taking someone's job over this. We know now what we didn't know then. I understand people made knee jerk reactions. I don't fault them for it. It is what it is. This needs to go away. This needs to progress as it's progressing and no one needs to lose their job over this. COVID was awful to this country, to this society. People lost their lives over this, and we never overlooked that fact. There are people who would otherwise be alive today who are not because of COVID. My family was impacted by it. Let's not compound the problem 
People lost their lives over this. People lost their jobs over this. People lost their businesses. Life will never be the same. Why make that worse? We know now what we didn't know then. We know what COVID is. We know what COVID isn't. It's absolutely no excuse to pursue any course of action to take someone's profession, to take their career, to take their job over this. At this point, we're going into our third year. Enough is enough. So one thing when I was talking to my friend that was uh, that was terminated, the sad thing is, as we touched on earlier in this conversation, the only truth in this whole conversation is the resilience of the human being, the resilience of this population. And of course, there are anomalies. But, you know, if you like dove into the physiology of these anomalies, you'd also see some sort of fragility in that particular individual. If you are opposed to vaccinations then you need to have a good underlying health to therefore have a good immune response when exposed to the virus, which is inevitable. If you are a diehard vaccine, you know, if, if you if you trust the vaccines, then you need to have a good underlying health to have a good immune response when receiving the vaccine to create the antibodies to give you the best chance of fighting this virus. So the only truth in this whole conversation, which goes back to, you know, O2X and some of these other things that we've touched on, is that we coming out of this needed to really address the elements that are killing our men and women, COVID or not. And so to me, the thing that angers me the most about these vaccine mandates is not a damn thing was done, as I touched on, to bolster local farms to create organic food locally to stop the food supply from being disrupted, to boost school sports and PE programs, to, to, to you know, motivate the men and women to eat better, to create an environment that allows them to make better choices in their fitness, in their nutrition. And we saw the polar opposite. And I've always said this, if you wrote down a piece of paper, how would you make people the most vulnerable they could be towards COVID-19? That's exactly what they did. Well, we'll keep them inside, out of daylight, away from other people. And all you can have is fast food and alcohol delivered to your house. So to then stand up and say it was about health and these first responders are selfish is fucking bullshit. Because if it was about health, two years of a captive audience, the new normal would be a much healthier environment than the old normal. And that was the polar opposite of what actually happened. Yeah, to, to refer to anyone as selfish, especially now where we're at with the whole transition and progression of COVID, um, I think to refer to anyone now as selfish for standing on their personal or religious beliefs, um, I think that's selfish because, again, we, we knowledge is power and education is everything and experience means a lot. We now know more about this than we did then. We know what it is. We know what it isn't. And this ties back into everything we've been talking about. If you're going to be about something, let's be about it. And to terminate people based off of their what should be their choice, which, by the way, you already agreed to and you already collectively bargained, you, you agreed with us on this, to then turn around and say, no, we're still going to take your job. Don't ever, ever try and come back around and say, you care about firefighter safety, health, and wellness. You care about firefighter well-being. You care about our mental health. Don't ever come back around and say that you ever bargained in good faith because 
when your objective at bargaining or negotiations is to pursue a course of action where you can terminate people based off of their beliefs, that's not in good faith. That's malicious. There's no other way to say it, especially now where we know that there are common sense alternatives. COVID was bad. There's no argument for me on that, but we've made it through. It's going to come back in some shape or form, and we're going to have to deal with it then. But now we're armed with education. We're armed with science. We're armed with our own experiences. It's just vindictive at this point. And why? Explain to me why someone who serves their city, who serves others at already great detriment to themselves, after all of this, they deserve to lose their job? No. Yeah, I agree completely. And again, if you look at the death toll, if we care about lives, like I said, then understanding, I think it was between 80 and 90%, now they're acknowledging were underlying medical conditions that COVID just finished them off. There we go. You look at some countries that were vilified like Sweden, their per capita death toll was very low because they're a very healthy nation. So again, you know, they're, they're, if you're talking about deaths and lives, then there's, there's that that's got to be brought into the conversation. Now, the one thing that really terrifies me, and I was kind of want to, want to come back to mental health when we round off this conversation is the ripple effect of the pandemic. As I said, I think we did everything we, you know, all the decisions were wrong. Of course, the, the isolation at the beginning, no one disagrees with that. We didn't know what it was. You know, the reports were terrifying at first. But this isolation, this separation, this division of the nation where families and friendships were destroyed over fucking masks and vaccines, which is just insane. The mental health impact of that terrifies me. And I'm already starting to see the ripple effect, even within the fire service with, with a lot of you know departments that I'm familiar with. What are you seeing through your lens as we've emerged from the last two years within your department in the mental health and then in the city you serve itself? No, I, I, I think it's there's no two ways around it. It had a very detrimental negative impact to the mental health of everyone, of all first responders who served during COVID. Um, take a look at, I mean, just the... And this is when I when I talk to people who are willing to have a conversation about it. Um, you talked about the lockdowns, the, you know, social, what do we call it? Social isolation, social distancing. Um, the vast majority of society was forced into quarantine because we didn't know what this was. And by all initial projections, it was going to kill millions of people. And it was going to be absolutely devastating. So understandably, people stayed in their houses, but not everyone. And I remember waking up in the morning, getting my uniform ready, getting my gear together, getting into my truck to drive to work. And you couldn't stop any. My neighbors couldn't leave their house. My neighbors couldn't go see relatives. You couldn't stop at a gas station and go inside. You couldn't get a cup of coffee because this was so bad. This was so deadly that we shut down society. And firefighters got up every day and we were scared. There's, 
I have no shame in admitting it. It was scary. It was, I was anxious driving into work during that because, okay, this is so bad that we had to shut down society. Um, but we're still going to work. Well, I took, I took pride in that because that's what we do. That's what's expected of us. And that's what we delivered. And now again, I after all of that, after we went through that and then the argument about masks and social distancing and when could we reopen society and, you know, is, is the, is the quote unquote solution starting to become worse? Is the solution to the virus starting to become worse than the impacts of the virus itself? Second and third level effects. This is getting really bad. Um, I would ask anyone, what would that do to your mental health? If after all of that, going to work when no one else did, going out into the world when no one else could and being exposed to it. You know, we, we respond on medicals. We deal with sick people. We deal with injured people. We go into burning buildings. We were at, we were at the, the front of all of that with pride, with professionalism to then make it through year, a couple of years of that and then be told, okay, we've made it through. Society is starting to come back. You can go out to dinner again. You can go see a family again. You can go spend time outside again. Um, life's getting back on track for the rest of the world. Hey, firefighters, you're fired. What would that do to your mental health? What would that do to anyone's mental health? Um, you know, and I, I commend all of my membership for everything that they do, but I, I really commend the members that we have who aren't vaccinated and were threatened with losing their jobs and, and really held it together. And um, there were some very hard days. There were a lot of, there was a lot of emotion and it's understandable. Um, but by and large, they really did a commendable job of holding the line. And in the face of what I, it's disrespect and there's no other way to put it. You, you, what would that do to anyone's mental health to come home and see the world getting back on track, to look at your wife, to look at your kids and, and to think that after all of this, you're going to lose your job when, when we know that there are common sense alternatives, when we know that mandating first responders to get this vaccine doesn't accomplish what you had hoped it would. It's just unnecessary. It's vindictive. It's mean. It's mean. There's no other way to put it. Can't do it. Well, with mental health, you know, mental ill health contribution, there's two things to add to that list that we touched on earlier. One is a loss of autonomy. And as you said, we were told to go to our, our homes. And let me be clear. I, I got vaccinated. I was going to travel back home. It had been just years and years and years. And I kept, you know, getting ready to go and then I had to push it back oh then I open yet then I open yet and I was going to see my grandmother who at the time was 103 I think um so again for me I'm like okay I need these to to travel I'm not scared of this either but at the same time I wouldn't get it if I didn't have to take this journey so I so I got the vaccination and again nothing happened whatsoever so that's you know the middle ground again but the you know the the 
being told you cannot do X, Y, and Z. And I'm in Florida, so we had a pretty, you know, good run of it really compared to most of the country. We opened up pretty quickly. But then the other thing, the another compounding element that people do not talk about when it's mental health is organizational betrayal, whether it's your department, whether it's your union, whether it's the city or county that you work for, whether you're a law enforcement officer who did the right thing and your agency threw you under the bus because your color tone didn't match the person that you arrested, then, you know, that is a, a crippling element to it as well, because you've worn that uniform with that department name on your badge and you've served selflessly and courageously. And all of a sudden, the rug is just pulled from under you. So that is another factor that terrifies me because, you know, same with 9-11 and then a few years later, FDNY are fighting for cancer benefits for their, you know, dying firefighters, you know, families before they pass away. It's the same thing now. Everyone was standing outside and clapping for you guys two years ago. And now, you know, they're selfish and we need to take their job. So I think that the ripple effect of all these elements are contributing to this horrendous wave of mental health, you know, problems that we're seeing, whether it's addiction, whether it's suicide or everything in between. It's difficult because, again, this is it's it's an argument of choice. It's an argument of freedom of choice, which, you know, typically when you're having an argument about freedom of choice and bodily autonomy, you're straying into some very emotional issues that have been emotional for society for decades and will be emotional to society, for society, for, for decades to come, which is why, again, when it comes to this, I, I really try to break it down to a fundamental level, which is... For us, an issue of collective bargaining and workers' rights, but also it's respect. And again, we shouldn't be having the same conversations in the same ways about COVID that we were having three years ago when we, when we knew nothing about it. Now, we have, what are, we, is it, are we in our third year yet or coming up on our third year? Um, I think we're coming up. I think it was February, wasn't it, really, where it started hitting okay. us in the US, so, I believe. So so some time has gone by and research has been conducted. Um, science has changed. The effectiveness of things have changed. But at the end of the day, it's we've we have some experience now. It's not brand new. Now, let's just respect each other. Let's respect each other's choices. Now, people made a decision to get vaccinated. I support their decision because that was they did what was right for them and people should have their personal beliefs and their personal decisions respected. That's a fundamental human value. Um, but you can't demand freedom of choice while simultaneously vilifying someone who made a different decision than you, especially when we know it's not detrimental to them. You're not risking their health. You're not risking their careers. This is a fundamental example of everyone should make the choice and pursue the course of action that they feel is best for them. And their decision should be respected and it should be defended. When you're threatening someone's livelihood, you can't turn around and call it a choice. It's a threat. And it's a threat that no American should ever have to face, but especially it's a threat that no one in any of the services should ever have to face. You know, we accept risk. We accept danger. We accept 
holding ourselves to a higher standard and being held to a higher standard, this is not holding us to a higher standard. This is actually treating us worse than others. This is holding us to a worse standard than you would hold others because you're basically holding our careers and livelihoods over our heads. And again, it's, it's unacceptable. We know it's unacceptable. There are plenty of common sense alternatives. Not a single one of them involves terminating somebody. So I remain cautiously optimistic that we're not going to have to go down this road again. I'm sure we're going to have to talk about it. I'm sure some things are going to have to get worked out. I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic and hopeful that everyone can sit down without egos, without politics, without money, and have a frank, transparent, human-to-human, professional-to-professional conversation and put this to bed. Beautiful. Well, Sam, I just want to throw some quick closing questions at you before I let you go. That's okay. Absolutely. Brilliant. All right. Well, the first one I love to ask, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Any books? Yeah. Um, you know, I, to truth be told, I'm not much of a reader anymore. Um, let's see here. Um, my favorite book as a kid growing up was actually Where the Red Fern Grows, which has nothing to do with anything that we've talked about. But uh, it's a great, great story about a boy and his dogs. So you, you can't go wrong with that. Um, I'm, I read uh, I read a lot of fire service uh, material, firehouse magazine, industry stuff. And now with my role now, um, a lot of contract proposals, a lot of uh, union bylaws, and constitutional stuff. Um, yeah, I, and shame on me. I I need to get back into the books, but uh, I, I haven't, I haven't really read a, a, a world changing book in a long time. Beautiful. Well, even the the childhood book, that's good. Like I said, it doesn't have to relate to our discussion at all. All right. What about movies or documentaries? Any of those that you love? Um, movies. So, um, mini series would be generation kill about the uh the marine invasion of iraq obviously um my favorite movie is braveheart can't watch that enough and um miracle as well beautiful i actually had rudy reyes um who was in generation kill but he was portraying himself oh, fruity rudy yep i had him on the show awesome. a while ago he's amazing yeah. an amazing yep. human being all right. Well, then the next question, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Could I recommend a guest for you? Yeah. Um, from Boston or just it can be from someone anywhere, overall? planet Earth or beyond. Who would I like to see on the podcast? Just someone I'd like to see you pick their brain. Yeah. Um, probably James Mattis. I just saw he was on. God, who the hell was it? It was on. He was on a podcast recently. I've never seen him one on before, but yeah, he was someone I'd like to get on as well. Yeah, uh, he seemed to be very respected by a lot of people in the military. Definitely, brilliant. All right, well then, the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you. What do you do to decompress? What do I do to decompress? Yes. Um, when I when I find something to decompress, I'll let you know. No, I um. I enjoy spending time at home. I mean, I'm, I'm incredibly busy with my schedule now. So decompression these days is fantastic. I spend time with my wife and um, I have a four-month-old baby son at home. 
who's the best. So, um, I, I used to, I used to take, uh, take my motorcycle for a ride. Um, used to kind of get out there a little bit more, but now it's, uh, if I'm not in the office or on the road for, for the union, I'm at home, um, just spending time with them and it's, it's the best. Beautiful. Is that your first child? It is. Yep. So with you, all the time you spent deployed with the Marines and then a lifetime in the fire service, what is your perspective of fatherhood after all that manly stuff that you were doing before? Oh, it's, it's, uh, it definitely puts, um, it puts an incredibly different perspective on everything that I've ever done. Um, I feel like I should call my mother and apologize to her. Like I should start off every single day with an apology to my mother. Just now, <laughs> now that I'm a parent and like, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I said that. Um, I have a, I, I have a lot more pride in what I've done. Um, and I, I have a lot more pride in what I do now. Um, because now it's, it's, that's someone direct like that. I have a son, which is incredible. And I feel like he's watching me do what I do and he uh, doesn't understand it, but someday he will. And, um, you know, I want him to be able to say, you know, what greater honor and like, you know, I want him to be able to say like, that was my, that's my father. You know, um, he, he stands up for what he believes is right. He, he stands on his convictions. Um, and he fights to defend other people and he fights to serve other people, um, whether that be people in a burning building or now fellow firefighters. You know, I, I want him to someday be able to to talk about me and say, you know, he 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 wore his heart on his sleeve and he genuinely cared for every single person that he had the honor to represent because that's the God's honest truth. And that's how I feel. That's what I believe. And hopefully that comes across. Beautiful. All right. Well then for everyone listening, where are the best places online to find you or, and also the union, because I'm sure as we've kind of touched around on this this uh, conversation, there are some very progressive elements to, you know, the health and wellness side that, that Boston has done. Obviously, you're one of the departments that has the 42 hour work week. So there are there's some blueprints that I'm sure a lot of departments could, you know, could ask and, 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 uh, use in their own departments. So where are the best places to find you personally? Are there any places online to kind of learn more about Boston's health and wellness and, and other areas? Yeah. So, um, our website is www. Boston Fire Local 718.org. Um, the best way to really uh, engage with us and see what we have going on is um, kind of one thing I've done is really tried to revamp and modernize our strategic communications and our PR work. Um, we, we do a lot on social media now, which we didn't do before, which I'm proud of. So uh, a couple social media accounts we have, uh, President underscore L seven one eight on Instagram. And we also have Boston firefighters on Instagram as well. Those are our two union accounts on Instagram and Boston firefighters, local seven eighteen IAFF on Facebook. 
Beautiful. Well, Sam, I just want to say thank you so much. We've been chatting for well over two hours now. We didn't really yeah, it was even, great. didn't even walk through your fire service <laughs> career that much, but we ended up hitting these, you know, more important topics, I think. Yeah. Um, I want to say thanks to Josh as well for connecting us before I forget. Oh, Josh is the best, man. So uh, yeah, and I love the 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 um, conversation you guys all had on the Jebo podcast as well. That was great. But yeah, I just want to thank you. It's it's I've been very vocal on my frustrations as a 14-year union dues paying firefighter on and I work for four departments. So I got a kind of unique perspective, East Coast and West Coast, mm-hmm. of the the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um and it's it's refreshing and um it fills me full of optimism when you meet, you know, union members, union um boards that truly are fighting for the right reasons. And I said there's some self-serving in some unions and it nauseates me, but it's so important that we choose these men and women that truly do want to move the needle on our overall wellness and, and safety. So I want to thank you for being, you know, the leader that you are and uh, for taking the time to really kind of unpack the conversation that we've had today. Absolutely. And uh, thank you for everything that you do as well. Um, you know, we touched on the mainstream media and how it's so difficult to get our side of the story out on anything. Um and that's why I, I enjoy doing the podcasts. I enjoy some of the other blogs that are out there, um, you know, especially talking to a fellow brother from the fire service. Uh, you know what we're up against. So keep fighting the good fight and uh, telling our story the way that it should be told and getting the truth out there.